You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey, it's good to be with you guys here in uh, South Florida. The reason why I say that, I I am one of the board members here at uh, Calvary, and we were part of this church when I was lived down here for six years in South Florida. But I live in Salt Lake City now, so I'm I'm, I I traded water for mountains. I traded uh, Latin America for Mormons. That's what it is. Come on, we're going to laugh together. It's the one o'clock. Like, I can go as long as I want. There's no service after this. So I'll hold you here forever if you don't laugh. <laughs> Thanks for the pity laugh. I appreciate that. No, it's, it, I love coming back down here. Uh, Pastor Bob uh, has been a friend for, well, it's been almost like 17 years. We were trying to figure this out. Bob and Carrie, we love them. My family and I, we're, we're very close to them. Uh, they're, they're really uh, great friends. So it's always a pleasure when Bob says, hey, can you come down and speak to the people of Calvary and, and be with us? So it's good to come down here. One of the reasons why I love coming back to South Florida is I love your coffee. Like we don't have Cuban coffee in Salt Lake. First of all, they don't drink coffee in Salt Lake. The Mormons, uh, they've got this thing where it's uh, no coffee. It's, a, it's against, against their rules, no coffee. So in my office, I'm, I'm the only guy that drinks coffee in my office. That's fine with me. It's just more for me. Uh, but the other day, too, one of, one of my coworkers, I was making some coffee after lunch, and he was like, oh, you're going to drink the, what do you call it, Satan's brew? And I'm making coffee, and he's like t- holding two rock star energies, you know? And I'm like, yeah, enjoy Satan syrup, you know? <laughs> uh, if you don't know why they don't drink coffee, we can talk in, in the lobby later. I'll explain it all to you. Okay, so listen, if you've never heard me speak, God bless you. That's amazing because you're uh, not in for a treat. Pastor Bob will be back next week and there'll be some phenomenal preaching. I'm a terrible preacher, but I think I'm a good teacher. And so here's what I like to do when I do teach is I'd like to take a chunk of scripture and I like to walk you through it. We'll just go verse by verse and we're gonna talk about it. And what I love to do is the Old Testament usually asks a question that the New Testament answers. And so when I knew I was coming down here to speak with you, I just I asked God, God, what, what do you want for the people of Calvary? What can we learn together? What do you have for us? And so I was led to actually my favorite book of the Old Testament, and it's the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've never studied the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm just gonna give you a, a tip, a hint, give you the end of the story. It's not a chipper book. It's actually a pretty dark book. And the reason why is because Solomon, who writes the book of Ecclesiastes, knows everything. Like, he is the richest of rich. Like, he's got Oprah money combined with LeBron James money combined with Warren Buffett money. Like, he's got it all money. And he's got, like, all these women, thousands of women. Like, literally, he's married and has concubines, which is just another word for stripper girlfriends in the Old Testament. But he's got it all. Those are jokes, people. They're not real strippers. Uh, You're like, what? Is that true? Does he know the Hebrew? Something I don't know? Maybe. But he's got all these women. He has all this wealth. He's the ruler. And then the other thing the Bible tells us is that when he asked God, God said, I'll give you anything you want. He actually asked God and said, you know what? I just want to be 
wise. I want wisdom. I want to be the smartest. And so he is the smartest. And so he, he pins this book, Ecclesiastes, where he's talking to you about every facet of what you and I live out in life. And, he's, and he breaks it down and basically shows you that that won't bring you happiness. I'm giving you the end of Ecclesiastes. He, he brings it, breaks it down. That's not going to bring you happiness. And so when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you get to the end and you're kind of like, let's just turn off the lights and, and listen to some deep, depressing music because it's not a chipper book. And you're like, that's your favorite book? I know, because I love the reality of Ecclesiastes. I love the reality of it. And so in chapter seven, he kind of w- wants to break down this idea and, and we're gonna walk through it together here. And so let's start in Ecclesiastes 7.15. And this is where he says, in my vain life, I love that, in my vain life, I have seen everything. This is Solomon, super rich. He's richer than you. He's smarter than you. He's prettier than you. He's got more spouses than you. And he's saying, I've seen it all. I've seen it all. And here's what he says he's seen. Verse 15 continues. He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life and his evil doing. So here, here's where I, wanna, I want us to kind of settle on. Pretty much the backdrop of all philosophy and all religion is this idea. Now, and, and, and I mean all religion. We can go really fringe religion like Wiccan Branch Davidians, we can even get more mainstream Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, evangelical Christians. Kind of at the center of all of this is kind of this philosophy, and we'll give it this name, and it's called karma. And what karma is, is when you put in good, you receive good. When you put in bad, you receive bad. So behind all of that, now, here, let me break this down for you when we talk about religion and at the backdrop of the karma is at the backdrop of these religions. And that is, if you do the things that religions tell you to do, you do the good things of that religion, you get some good reward. So if you follow the religious rules, then good things happen to you at the end. Whether it's 72 virgins, whether it's uh, a, a certain level of heaven, whether it's heaven, like whatever blessing you get at the end if you do those good things. Um, And then on the other side of that is if you do bad things, you get the bad rewards of that that religious system. So whether it's purgatory, punishment, God's wrath, hell, whatever it is, comes about with bad acts. We all on the same page? All right. Listen, we can talk. There's not very many of us right now. So we can, it's like sitting on the couch together. Like we we can have this discussion here. Um, so this is kind of the backdrop of the universe and the way the universe seems to operate is this yin and yang. You put in good, you get out good. You put in bad, you get out bad. And for those of you that just need a little help here, I'm going to help you remember ninth grade science. And let me show you how karma works. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Hey, there you go. That's karma. Okay. So it seems like the world's operating under this karma. I mean, it's the basis of most philosophy and it's the basis of most religions. Now, if you ask a Christian and say, hey, do you believe in karma? Usually the response you'll get back from a Christian is, are you crazy? 
We don't believe in that voodoo. You take that Eastern mystic idea and get that out of here. That's bad juju. You go. Like, that's the way a Christian, evangelical Christian, usually would answer this idea of if we believe in karma. But here's what I would say. If you just listen to the way evangelicals, if you listen to the way we talk, the way we talk seems very karma. And here, 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 I'll point this out. Like, when something bad happens to somebody who's wicked, you hear us say stuff like, well, he got what was coming to him, right? Or we use these terms like, you play with fire long enough, you're gonna get burned. I know you guys aren't from Texas, but you use this one. You mess with the bull long enough, you get the horns, right? I went to TCU for undergrad, so I, I got the Texas in me from just going down there. Okay, so now, what I think is more telling is the way we talk about uh, when something bad happens to somebody who's good. We'll, we'll say stuff like this, like, oh my goodness, out of all the people that that could happen to, I can't believe that happened to Tyler. Like, he's such a good guy. Right? Doesn't that reveal the, our logic and our thinking, the way we talk about the wicked or the good? That's karma. That's karma, and it's invaded our thought process. It's invaded the way in which we operate, even as evangelical Christians, that we think bad things should happen to bad people, good things should happen to good people. It's this yin and the yang. So Solomon is actually gonna talk here in chapter seven. He's gonna say that if, if karma is the operating system of the universe, something's gone horribly wrong. If karma is the operating system of the universe, something's gone horribly wrong. And so he's going to give you two flaws of, of karma. And the first one here is the one that he just kind of pointed out here. The first one is that he has this problem with karma as he says, listen, guys, I've seen the good die young and I've seen the evil live to be old. He points out the, this exception, Right? So he says, if there's karma out there, it doesn't work. If karma exists, it doesn't work. Here's what he's really saying. And I'm going to break it down to 2021. We'll say that if he's saying basically like, guys, karma doesn't exist and it's not real because I watch the news. Like if you and I are sitting on the couch and having this discussion right now, I mean, did you see what happened to the, I think she was nine years old in a McDonald's drive-thru, shot and killed. You tell me that's karma? Or a bunch of FedEx employees show up for an early morning shift and somebody from a year ago that used to work there shows up as well with a gun. You tell me that's karma? No, we all know that. We always sit back and say, no, that's not karma. That's not karma. And that's, that's what he's trying to get here. Now, if we were having this discussion on the couch, hopefully your response back to me was, well, maybe Solomon's just pointing out exceptions. There's always exceptions to the rules. So that's the first flaw that he says is, look, I've seen, I've seen the good die young and I've seen the evil live to be old, but he has another problem with it. It's in verse 16. He says this. He says, be not overly 
righteous. I know some of you are like, amen, I can do that. <laughs> amen, got it. <laughs> Wait, let's finish. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, it almost feels like what he's saying here is, listen, just be righteous in moderation. That's kind of what it feels like a little bit. It's like, yeah, listen, guys, uh, go to church. Just cuss in the car on the way to church. You know, yell at your kids at home when no one's watching. Just don't do it in public. Like, that's kind of what it feels like a little bit. Like, he's saying, do this in moderation. But according to Solomon, what he's getting at here is he's saying, there's a rightness that is wrong. Like, Solomon is attacking us being right in our own eyes. That's what he's attacking here. Now, look, this is, this is self-righteousness. The hardest, the hardest part about self-righteousness is that everybody that really needs to learn about self-righteousness and needs to, to, to teach themselves about self-righteousness and needs to digest the teachings of self-righteousness is usually the person going, well, that's for Bob right over there. Like they don't ever think it's about themselves. That's the hard thing about teaching about self-righteousness. Let me defi define self-righteousness for you here. Self-righteousness is defining our rightness by what we do not do. So when you start measuring your rightness by what you don't do, your rightness actually starts coming at the expense of other people because you start comparing yourselves to others. So you start going, well, listen, I don't murder like him. I don't steal like her. I don't lie like them. I don't act like that guy. I don't do those things. So therefore, I'm right. And when we start comparing ourselves to others, man, we start getting into some weird areas. In fact, Jesus actually talked about this whole type of scenario. I'll kind of modify this for, for 2021. Jesus tells this story in the New Testament, and this is the modified version, is a guy shows up to church. He sits on the front row, and it's a packed house. And this guy's got like the tattoos up and down his arms. He's got, all of them are religious tattoos. Crosses, the dove. He's got his, his gold necklace with a cross. He's got the WWJD bracelet. He's got the shirt that says, it looks like the Sprite logo, but it says spirit instead. You know this guy. Sitting on the front row and he's got the big giant Bible. It's the big family Bible with the naked baby on the front, the naked angel baby on the front. And it's King James version too, because that's God's language. God speaks 1611 English only. These are jokes, people. <laughs> A little tough in the one o'clock. One o'clock is like, uh, we got lunch. Sorry this up. So he sits on the front row and he's taking notes and he's got that big thick pencil that you used to get at the fair when you were a kid. And it's got Philippians 4.13 written on that pencil. And every time the preacher says something, he's, uh-huh, come on. And he's taking notes on everything. And this is like a movie. And the back row of this packed out house, 
is a guy weeping. And it's almost one of those situations where it's almost uncontrollable weeping. And it's uncomfortable weeping. Like everyone's trying to pay attention to the, what the preacher is saying up at the front. But you can't because you can just hear the sobs from this guy in the back. It's like he's not even paying attention to what the preacher has to say. And at the end of the service, the pastor invites everyone to pray. And Mr. Philippians 4.13 gets up and he prays really loud. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that, you've, that I'm righteous. Thank you that I'm not like that man in the back. Mr. Sobby Soberton, who's just sobbing away, distracting all of us. Thank you that I haven't been to the places that he's been and I haven't done the things that he's done. Thank you, Lord. And it's almost like a movie. The camera pans around and it eventually gets to the back row. And you, the back row, as it zeroes in on the guy sobbing, you can tell that he's not even paying attention to Mr. Philippians 4.13 at the front. You can actually hear his prayer and his prayer is, God, have mercy on me for I'm a wicked man. I need you. And Jesus asked this question, who goes home justified? Who goes home justified? Now, justified is just a fancy way of him asking, who goes home right with God? And Jesus would answer that with the guy in the back row, not Mr. Philippians 4.13, the guy on the back row. Because there's a rightness that is wrong. There's a rightness that is wrong. All right, we're going to keep going. Ecclesiastes 7.16, I just want to reread it to you. It says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then he takes on the, the other side of the coin. Verse 17, he says, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So his answer is kind of this idea of like, look, don't, be, don't, don't hang your hat on this righteousness thing because it's self-righteousness. But don't be a fool and just divulge in wickedness. And then he gets into verse 18. He says, it is good that you should take hold of this. What's the this that he's saying you should take hold of? It's righteousness. He's saying it's good to be right. It's good to, to have righteousness. Now read this whole thing in context that that's what he's talking about. It is good that you should take hold of righteousness and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in the city. So what he says here is he says, look, don't, don't get caught up in self-righteousness. Don't, don't fall into just wickedness. There's a right way of being right. And there's a, there's a wrong bit way of being right. And if you can figure that out, he says, you are smarter than 10 rulers. Contextualize it. He says, you are smarter than 10 presidents, which is pretty easy these days, but whatever. It's my one political joke. Ha ha, come on guys. And he says, like, you're smarter. Like, if you can figure this out, you're so smart. Look at verse 20. He says, surely. Now he said all that. He says, if you're so smart, if you can figure this out. And then verse 20, it's like the dagger. So it was a surely. 
There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He says, even if you figure this out, you're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to sin. Even if you can figure this whole thing out and you only do good and you are righteous, you're still going to make mistakes. You're still going to sin. Verse 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. This is where it like starts getting personal. You're like, dang, man, why do you got to do that? He says here, like, when you hear others that have cursed you, talking bad about you, they're dogging you, why are you getting mad at them? You know you've done that to others. You know you've dogged others. You know you've talked behind their back. You know you've cursed other people. Why is it just a problem when it happens to you? Let me give you an example. It's a little bit easier to think through this way. You ever been driving down the interstate, the turnpike here? And there's somebody in their Tesla and they're driving like 120 miles an hour and they cut you off. They're driving like a maniac. And you're like, there's a God in heaven. I pray that there's a Florida highway patrolman right up there down the road and it's going to pull them over and get them a ticket. I know you've done it. I know you've done it. But then those times when you've been late and you're speeding and your prayer changes to, Dear Lord, please don't let there be a highway patrolman up there to give me a ticket. And you're doing the same thing. It's this idea that what he's getting to is you're busted. You're getting mad at other people for the very things that you do. And listen, this is human nature. It's what we do. It's human nature. Verse 23, I love this. He starts to take us in for this little landing of a question. He says, all this I've tested by wisdom. He says, listen, guys, I've tested all this. I'm super smart. I've tested this. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. He says, I'm smart. Try to figure this out, but I couldn't. Verse 24, that which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? It's just like, you and I, we do, we strive to figure this out. We strive not to be self-righteous, but yet be right. We strive not to be wicked and not be foolish. And he says, this whole karma thing that doesn't work. So what do we do? Is there any hope for us? Or is it just karma the answer? Now, Romans chapter eight, if you have your Bible, Bible, bleh, can't talk. Listen, this morning I had lots of Cuban coffee this morning because that's what I like about South Florida. A lot of things I like about South Florida, but the Cuban coffee is probably one of the top ones. I mean, I could feel my heart beating when I was up here on the first couple services. Like if they could have put the drums, I could have been the drums for the service. Uh, it was awesome. I was speaking in tongues uh, it was incredible. People were given the interpretation. They also had Cuban coffee that morning. I'll have some before I get on a plane just to make sure I can stay awake and get some work done for the week. <laughs> um, so Romans 8. Here's what I love about Romans 8. Paul writes in Romans 8, and he's actually kind of answering this, not on purpose, but he gives us the answer in Romans 8. 
as he talks here. And here's what I'd like to say to all of us here. I think if you and I are truly, truly honest, and I get that church is not the place to be honest with each other, but if we're truly honest with each other, I'm glad that some of you get my jokes. It makes me feel good. Uh, if we're truly honest with one another, like literally in the back of our minds, karma still exists. Like we still think good equals good, bad equals bad. We still think that if we do the good things, the right things, we're gonna get good, positive results when it comes to God. And if we do the bad things, we're gonna get bad, positive results when it comes to God. And so kind of back behind us, we know it's a messed up system. It's almost like a, a, a machine that's, that's thrown a piston and it's just a clanky, noisy machine that lives in the background of our heart. And here's what I'll say. Then in the middle of all this noise, all this noise of karma, love interrupts. And that's what Paul is talking about when we get into Romans 8. He's talking about this interruption of the world. This interruption of modern day philosophy for then, back then and for even today. He's talking about the interruption of religious philosophy. Verse one of Romans eight, I love this. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now here's the thing. I studied Greek in my undergrad. I studied it in my master's. And let me tell you what that Greek word for no means. It means no. It means zero. It means zilch. He says there is no condemnation. That means all the bad stuff that you've done, it's not held against you. All of it, not held against you. It says there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you come to Jesus, he removes and he interrupts all of this. He removes the karma machine from the world. He re removes it from you. And so all that bad that you've put in, you don't get bad on the other side because there is no condemnation. And here's the great thing is that it's not just your past. Like when I say your past, I mean all those skeletons that you've got in the closet. I mean the boneyard you got out back. It means all those things you've ever done when you sit and think, man, they don't know what I've done. And Jesus says, I know what you've done. There's no condemnation. And it's not just the past. It's your present too. See, listen, Jesus isn't in love with the future version of you. He's not in love with a version of you of when you clean yourself up and you start actually doing your Bible studies every morning. He's not in love with a version of you that prays more. He's not in love with a version of you that five years from now. He's in love with you right now. Right now. I have two daughters, both in high school, so pray for me. There's, listen, at least you can bury kids in the Everglades if they mess around. We ain't got that in Utah. Uh, the boys are coming around asking my daughters to prom and stuff, and I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. Um, I don't love my daughters a future version of them. 
And listen, my daughters aren't perfect. They make mistakes all the time. I love them right now. I'm not gonna love them more. They can't ever get more of my love. I love them right now. That's the same love God has for you. He doesn't love a version of you where you check off things on a to-do list. He loves you right now. And listen, there's nothing you can do in the future that he's going to go, whoa, didn't see that one coming. Oh my goodness. I would have rethought that whole dying on the cross for you thing if I'd have known you were going to do that. No, he loves you now. And here's what I've learned about being a parent. My kids act out when they're not feeling love and acceptance. Here's what I've learned as a leader. People act out when they don't realize they're wanted and loved. You and I act out when we don't realize how much God loves us. And so for some of us here today, we need to just sit back and meditate on this idea that God loves you now. He loves you now. That's transforming. Not to-do lists. That's behavior modification. That's what to-do lists are. You know what's transformational? Is love. That's why the Bible tells us that God is love. That's transformational. When you realize you are wanted, when you realize you are loved, that's what transforms us. Verse two, Romans 8, 2 says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, the law said you have to do these things to be right. In fact, Paul writes to the, in the book of Galatians to the church in Galatia and he says, listen, if the law could save you, then Jesus died for nothing. And he's explaining this. Here's what God has done though. He's replaced that idea of sin and death. And now what he's given you is life and peace. He's removed this. He has jumped in and love has interrupted. Verse three, I love verse three. It's, it's probably one of the, the greatest texts in all of the Bible. I'm telling you if, you, if you haven't ever had a verse that you're like, look, this is my favorite verse of the Bible, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a play for Romans 8, 3 for you. Like, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna give it a little prop that you should probably look at 8, 3 of Romans. It's a good one. Romans 8, 3 says, for God has done, by the way, who has done? God, God has done. You didn't do anything. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in the middle of this broken down dinosaur called karma, love interrupts. And for what the law could not do, God did. Now, what we call this, we ascribe this and we call it grace. And grace is this very beautiful reality that I think most of us miss out on here. 
Like whether we want to admit it or not, I think a lot of us keep going back to karma over and over again. But that's not the way it is for those of us in Christ. You don't need to figure this thing out by a to-do list. You need to accept that God has done this and there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. I think this is the reason why the majority in this room, we refuse to accept the fact that God is pleased with you now. It's because we go back to the karma. But righteousness, it's a state of being. It's not a list of actions. I'm gonna say that again. Righteousness is a state of being. It's the why and it's the way we are when we are purchased by Christ. See, this is what makes Christianity different from all philosophies and all of the religions, all of them. You do nothing for this. You do nothing. It's given to you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to die for it. It's given to you. You just got to accept it. It's a gift. All you got to do is accept it. So here's what I want to ask this question, because I've asked this question myself and it was revolutionary when I understood the answer that I was giving versus what the reality is. When I ask, why are you a good Christian? What's the answer in your own mind? Do you start to think about, well, it's because I read the Bible or I know the Bible. It's because I go to church. It's because I pray for people. It's because of the way I act. Like, what's the answer of why you're a good Christian? Or if I ask it a different way, what makes you righteous? Do you start thinking about the things that you do right? Because the answer should always just be because God, God makes you righteous. Jesus did that on the cross. You do nothing for it. It's given to us. This is what sets us apart from every other religion. He is our righteousness. He is our rightness. He is our wholeness. God is. And karma, it's interrupted by love. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. There is, there is, Lord, there is just this audacity of grace. There's an audacity of grace, God. We deserve punishment, death, sin, but you give us life and peace. The world would say that our wrong acts deserve us to have wrath bestowed upon us. And you give us hope. You give us righteousness. God, I pray that today, maybe for the first time, it, it becomes a intellectual thing for us to understand how much you love us now that there is no condemnation in you and that you have 
given us grace and that you alone make us righteous. And no matter how much we spin our wheels, no matter how we try, we can't do this on our own. We need you. God, transform us as we understand this powerful, this powerful, mysterious thing called grace, this love of yours. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for letting me be here with you. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.